0: If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir,
1: it's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to the happiest Heretic Happy Hour podcast on the planet. And uh, I am one of many hosts. Uh Keith Giles. Uh I'm the author of several books, including most recently released Jesus Undefeated Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment. And um we are smack dab in the middle, near the end, really, of a brand a series we're doing about the Sermon on the Mount. So pull up a chair, pull yourself a drink, put your feet up, and uh, get yourself ready for some awesome podcasting going on right here. Uh but first I think uh, my co-hosts need to introduce themselves. So boys and girls, say hi. I am Katie Valentine.
0: I'm aiming to be your most heretical of the heretical hosts this week, yes, and I like to talk about <laughs> I like to talk about sex positivity. So you could read my book, "Sex Slavery and Self Control in a Pauline Community," where I talk a little bit about that.
2: I am Derek Dave. I'm the author of "Deconstructing Religion," and I will see Katie's heresy and raise it <laughs> a heretic yes,
0: okay. because I
2: aim I aim to be the biggest fucking heretic on the team.
1: Well yeah, there you
3: go. And my name's Ricky Gantz, and you're all heretics.
1: <laughs> you guys dangerous?
3: I'm just playing. I'm just playing. <laughs> no, I'm Matt Stefano, and I'm I'm just a good old fashioned heretic, maybe an apostate these days. So uh I, I won't I won't challenge you all to a heresy off. But um dig that man. Dig it. Did you know, fellow listeners,
2: boys and girls, that we have a hotline. You can reach us by exercising the dexterity of your index finger and dial 240-343-7379. Once again, that's 240-343-7379. And we have a text. Roll text. Hi, guys. This is Steve from Massachusetts. First, I want to say that I love your podcast, and I enjoyed the new host episode of a PSA on PSA. This sparked a thought that I love that I would love for you to comment on. As you said, there are lots of atonement theories, but I find it interesting that the New Testament never clearly spells it out, and the writers appear to be working it out even then. What if this is supposed to be a Cohen?
1: What the fuck is a Cohen? No idea. That's you <laughs> Yeah,
3: it's I, pronounced "coffee." Is,
1: yeah. I mean, is that a typo? Maybe he typed. His, hey, you know, there's a head.
2: question. There's a question mark there. So yeah. you know, it's like, hey, Derek, like, really, what the hell? Uh, but anyway, <laughs> uh, or something along the lines of Jesus' parables, meaning we're supposed to wrestle with what it means. But is there not supposed to be a single answer? Keep up the great work.
1: Mm.
2: Thank you, Steve. Yeah, thanks. interesting.
0: So I think it's cone, and I know just enough to be really dangerous about this. Okay, And there, I think it's, it's part of a Buddhist tradition. I think Zen Buddhism. Yes. and <laughs> Buddha. And so when someone is given a cone, when a monk is given a cone, they meditate on it often for years. And there is like Steve said, no simple answer. And I think they go to their masters with an answer, but you, you, you work with this in your mind and spirit for a long, long time. And so. That's as much as I know. Hmm.
3: Yeah, and and Alan Watts was the master of this. He would use um, kind of these arguments or logical sequences, and he would put you in what's called a double bind to get you to realize the futility of your logic. Um, so I think maybe it sort of is a cone, but I think maybe it's a little bit different. I like I like I said in. Um, in in the episode that's being referenced i don't think there's one atonement theory that can that could that can really grasp the whole meaning of atonement and i think it would be futile to say otherwise so maybe in that way it's it's sort of a cone but um i think the point being is that yes i i think we still have to wrestle with this just as the new testament yeah, writers i, agree. I, with
1: I it. think um i think atonement theories in large part are kind of a mistake it's almost like a theological pretzel we get ourselves into just because we feel like we have to um sort of make all these things make some sort of sense or provide some sort of overarching way of tying all these different uh theological ideas together in some nice neat little bow um so yeah i i guess for me i mean i i'll say this i love what you said here steve i I'm much more interested in the fact that maybe these things are just there for these different metaphors about the atonement, about the crucifixion. Um, Maybe they really are meant for us just to uh, embrace the mystery of them, and uh, and not so much things we puzzles we're supposed to solve. So, I mean, I'm I hope it's that because I prefer I'm much more comfortable with that than with this whole idea of like, no, no, there's some one single overarching, you know, theory that makes everything make sense.
2: Yeah, everything just one thing that that covers everything, you know, that takes care of all the 40,000 plus denominations. Mm-hmm. But listen, one thing I want to say though real quick and this is just kind of like beside the point, but we get we have this this neat sound effect for every time we say a cuss word. I would like to have a sound effect for when someone uses something really highbrow like cone. <laughs> I mean, I want equal time here. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, I feel like crazy. we can have a Star Trek, like, There you know, go, yeah. Sure. Or something. Okay. But I love this question from Steve, or the, the comment from Steve, because it really points to the multivalency of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And when we shift from having an answer to having many answers that are meditated on over years— You know, something like as complex as the Sermon on the Mount or as complex as a parable. I'm so glad you brought up parables. They do have new meaning year after year, week after week. And when we stop pinpointing to one answer, we have this possibility of many answers. So not not quite a cone in the same way, but more like an unfolding, like an unfolding flower. I like that. It continues to have meaning, uh, Mm -hmm. meaning anew. And Jesus shows us that. Jesus is always reinterpreting.
1: And so are we. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. So you know what? I think um that may mean it's time for us to um transition here.
3: Yeah. Let's get that heretic. It's the heretic of the
4: week.
3: Hi there. My name is Jeremy Courtney, and I'm
4: the heretic of the week.
1: Hi, Hi Jeremy. Jeremy. <laughs> oh, Jeremy. <laughs> I tell you what, it's kind of a dream of mine to have you on this podcast. Um, I've been a huge fan of you. I think I saw a TED Talk you did a couple of years ago, just kind of talking about the vision you had and then got involved, started getting involved with Preemptive Love and supporting what you guys do. And um, you've written some books. Uh, Really, I just love you. I love your heart. And this is the first time you and I have actually spoken. So I want to welcome you to the the podcast. And we usually kick things off by asking the first question um, of our guest's Uh, Jeremy, why is it that anybody would possibly consider you a heretic?
4: Oh, well, how much time do we have? There's a lot of reasons why people think... uh, (laughs) You
1: know what, we have half an hour. Do whatever you want.
4: (laughs) It's certainly... uh, It's it's a common occurrence, I would say. Um, Where to start? I mean, uh, I moved away from the United States shortly in the aftermath of the September 11th terror attacks. I was kind of conscripted into the war on terror as a missionary and lived for a number of years in the Middle East as a missionary and um, then stopped doing that and started a new kind of way of living. And for that reason, if not as well for many others, I have had a number of people accuse me and that that shift in my life toward the humanitarian work that we do now with Preemptive Love Coalition uh, of being a heretic.
1: Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, is that, is part of that, um, disconnect or criticism that you get from some of these people? Is it because you have shifted from preaching the gospel to sort of doing things that practically, practically, um, express the gospel? Yeah. I mean,
4: the word heretic can be a very personal thing depending on who's saying it. So I think mm-hmm. every every person ends up maybe having their own motivation or their own fear that they're compensating for their own lens on why they might be saying that. But, but yeah, I mean, broad strokes. Um, we, we've just moved, I think here's how I would sum it up. I am, I have most often been accused of apostasy, heresy, betrayal, um, watering things down, Losing salvation, all those things, <laughs> yeah. um, by those who have generally not left home, on mm. and, and certainly not left home base on the order of, of what we have, having moved out into the Middle East, living. I'm I'm calling in now from Iraq, where I've lived here in Iraq for nearly 15 years. Um, we've we've experienced a lot of things, and I understand it can be hard to kind of synthesize those things back into your worldview if you've not experienced some of what we've experienced. And so the word that we often put on
3: that inability to
4: synthesize is heresy. Mm.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I wonder if that, that seems to be a common thread, no matter what you, where you fall on. If, um, if you're talking uh, about racism, it seems like the the people who are the most racist don't have black friends, for example. Or if you're talking about homophobia, people have not befriended gay people. If you're talking about what is good Christian uh salvation, what is how we're gonna view this, you probably haven't gone and lived out in Iraq like you have. You've you've lived here in the States or wherever you're calling or wherever you're you know calling home, uh normally in the Western world, but probably elsewhere. And you really haven't um Met or dealt with people in your life that think differently than you and see things completely different.
4: Yeah, I, I think there's something about leaving the Shire that <laughs> that makes us. Um, yeah. Well, it just challenges the story. It challenges everything in the Shire. And when we try and bring foreign experiences back home to the Shire, there's there's antibodies built up. To protect mm. us from, from kind of those foreign invading alien forces, stories, realities, values. And um, I think it's all very normal. And yet sure. we have to do it. We, we have to be exposed to germs from the outside or we're actually vulnerable.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, since we have about 25 minutes left, I guess we're going to talk Tolkien because I'm a total Tolkien dork. <laughs> so, thank you for for making that analogy. I feel I want to be
4: explicit in saying that the germs thing is a metaphor. Um I don't right. think that foreign people or foreign religions or, you know, anything like that, things that I don't understand are not uh necessarily wrong or germy or whatever mm-hmm. nasty.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: It's just a metaphor to to kind of dig in on that antibodies attack type thing that I was referencing earlier.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, going back to what you're saying, uh, the thing I've been, um, noticing as well, when I interact with different people and they have these sort of negative pushbacks on these different approaches to, uh, people of different faiths or different belief systems, even within our faith. Um, it's sort of this, like we have to, I don't know. I just feel like uh, American Christians are very, tribalistic, we're very us and them oriented. Um, It's the assumption that I'm right, and uh, all the things that I believe are right, and I can't possibly be wrong about any of those things. And anyone who doesn't think the same way I do uh, is a heretic or is, you know, uh, questionable as far as whether they're going to be saved or not, or those kinds of things. And yet, like you said, it kind of stems from the fact that we haven't really taken any time to get to know anybody who thinks, in other words, we're not really learning how to listen, and we're not holding loosely to the, our assumptions to, to recognize, you know, we could be wrong about a few things.
4: Yeah, I, I think white American Christian evangelicals in particular uh, of our general age group have, have enjoyed such a position of kind of unassailed power for so long. That, that there is kind of a default sense that, that we are right and we are not used to being challenged and we are, we're not used to doing a lot of self-reflection on our worldview and our default assumptions. But I will say I don't think it's a, an exclusively American or right. Christian or yeah. white people problem. I think um, it's, it's actually a feature of faith, yeah. all faith, broadly speaking, goes through that stage of um, you know, basically assuming that it is intrinsically right. And there is a way of understanding our faith development where to get a stronger faith, we actually have to push back against it. We have to question it. We have to interrogate our own assumptions and our own faith. And that leads yeah. to kind of a whole stage of faith development called like differentiation might be one way you talk about it where you you're deliberately trying to distance yourself from everything you've ever known in faith. And the truth is very few people go through that level of differentiated faith and even fewer still go to the next level which is a kind of synthesizing move back toward home, back toward the thing that you grew up with, back back toward some of your previous assumptions only now on a higher plane, on a higher, more integrative level. And I think we see that in Islam, we see it in Judaism, we see it in Christianity, we see it in Buddhist and meditative practices. It's it's a feature of faith and faithfulness and belief. It's not purely a Christian or American problem.
1: Yeah, exactly. So just to get a little more specific and drive us a little um, further down this road of things I know we want to cover in our interview, you know, I know that you you touched on this a little bit, you know, talking about around the time of 9-11 and all of that. So it seems like just from what I know of your story, uh, and I'm trying to get you to talk a little bit more about how that, what that was like and what was, what what was driving that. It seems like you have, you experienced sort of a shift away from what we're describing, uh, sort of the white evangelical, you know, middle-class perspective uh, and you had this shift that caused you to to take a pretty radical step um, to express the love of Christ to who at the time were our enemies um, in a very beautiful and powerful way. And so, if you would, could you talk a little bit about like what led you to take that step? What was it that drove that? And 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 then please, uh, ex- of course, explain for people listening who don't know uh, about primitive love and and what it's all about.
4: Yeah. So. In the aftermath of September 11th, a lot of the people around me—I I would say maybe the majority of the people around me in Texas, where I was going to school at the time—spoke um, of Muslims and Middle Easterners and Arabs and you know all the all that we kind of think of as the Muslim world. We all, the people around me spoke of them with great angst, fear, and vilification at, at that time. And um, we we knew we didn't want to be like that. We knew we didn't want to be like all in hating Muslims. And so while a lot of our friends and family and acquaintances were grabbing guns and kind of going off to war in Afghanistan and then later Iraq, we grabbed our Bibles and went off to save the muslims they were going off to kill the muslims we were going off to save the muslims um and we did that faithfully as a as a true expression of love as best we knew love at that time but after trying it for a number of years i think it it started to reveal blind spots that we had we didn't know muslims at the time that we took up the the call to go uh change them and save them and disparage their faith and uh, promote the singular supremacy of our own. Like we, we didn't even know everything we knew was very abstract. And when we finally moved into the neighborhood and met Muslims for the first time and knew Muslims and were cared for by Muslims and protected by Muslims, it, it, it put well to, to use a Christian term, it, it helped Islam become incarnated. They incarnated Islam for us. Now they were they were not just an abstraction. They weren't just spirit. They weren't just philosophy and ideas. They were real human beings in our life. And that started to change our our own posture. It started to change our own theology. It changed our practice. And fast forward a number of years, I had a profound religious kind of awakening experience that I write about in my book. But it it changed everything ultimately and right. I, I came out of this kind of wakeful, prayerful vision completely transformed. Yeah. And we, we ended up we were living in Turkey at the time, we ended up moving into Iraq uh in the middle of the Iraq war, trying to turn over a new leaf. We we knew that we didn't want to do the conversionary missionary church planting thing anymore. We were becoming more and more aware of human needs, economics, social systems, politics. We knew we wanted a more kind of well-rounded response, not just talking about people's souls and where they go when they die. And so we moved into Iraq to start figuring out how to be humanitarians and how to respond to the suffering of the Iraq war and ended up starting our own organization called preemptive love to respond to those needs at that time
1: Mm -hmm. so i think the um the thing i think specifically at least when i when i first heard your story um the thing specifically that you noticed when you got there which is so beautiful like actually go there in person observe you know learn uh you know these are all beautiful steps i think many uh People that want to consider themselves missionaries should probably adopt similar <laughs> tactics um, you know don't just come with the answer come first listening and learning and uh, understanding and so anyway, it seems like what you did was you what you noticed was uh, as a result of the conflict um, there were the um, us military and their tanks use these depleted uranium shells, which is exactly what it sounds like it's depleted uranium it's uh, it's um, and when it's when the, when the projectile is fired through Uh, the barrel it superheats and it actually can cut through concrete and steel like butter, which is why we use them there. It's, it's an incredibly effective projectile, but the problem is um, we left these things lying all over the place and they are still radioactive. And, um, that was causing some pretty serious birth defects. Right. And you noticed that.
4: Yeah. I would just for the sake of clarity and, and precision, I would, I would add a little color. Um, a couple of things. As best we can tell, the the munitions themselves don't seem to pose any threat in their unexploded form. Okay. Uh, the radioactive qualities that they seem to possess as a byproduct of the uranium enrichment process is too minuscule to even break through our skin. And the chemical toxicity of the uranium as a heavy metal uh, really doesn't pose any threat as a shell there sitting on the ground or in a, you know, in a warehouse or whatever. The problem is when they explode, they, that, that heavy metal aerosolizes. It turns into particles that are so small they can actually be ingested into our bodies. And at that internal cellular level, the radioactive properties are strong enough to penetrate our cell membranes and do damage at a a DNA level. And then the chemical toxicity of heavy metal powder is enough to cause damage, just like sprinkling lead in our water and drinking it down might do. Um, so it it wasn't merely that we left some shells behind. It's that we unloaded so many tons of these weapons and they exploded all over the country. And we left a kind of chemical dust, a a toxic Mm. dust all over the country. Mm. Now that's a theory. I, I need to be clear. That's a theory. There's, there's been no, Field research that could tie anything that's happened in Iraq uh, definitively back to those weapons, but anecdotally, there are a lot of people who have cried foul and asked for further research on this, including a lot of U.S. military, uh, whose whose own exposure to the aerosolized uh, depleted uranium has has caused many American soldiers to get sick, and and they suspect that maybe our own weapons are causing our own people to get sick, never mind the Iraqi people. Right. So it was, it was kind of the combination in the environment that we were in that, that started us asking questions about huge number of Iraqi children we were seeing born with, with birth defects. Now, the stressors of war in and of themselves are, are horrible and could cause birth defects for, for a mother. Just the, the stress of trying to carry a child to term with bombs going off around you the stress could be a factor. Um, there, there could be any number of other factors, but, but the the simple story that we heard of Saddam Hussein using chemical weapons against his people, and then in response to that, the Americans using chemical weapons or or radioactive weapons against the population, uh, it was horrifying enough to really get our attention and get us involved. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So how, how exactly are you involved for our listeners who aren't familiar with you? Um, I know obviously you guys are on the ground doing things. So what is it that you're doing um, to, uh, I know this is not necessarily Francis of Assisi, to spread the gospel <laughs> without talking, right? Without just actually doing the gospel yeah. um, with your hands and feet?
4: Yeah. So fast forward a number of years, I'll, I'll skip over some important stuff. But the, what we have evolved into. Um, is an organization that is working to end war. We've we've seen enough war, we've lived through enough war, we've been shot at, we've been bombed, we've been on the brink of kidnapping, and we've seen how it affects millions and millions and millions of people, tens of millions over decades in multiple countries now. So our work has grown. We are a coalition around the world working to end war. But we're not anti-war activists. We're not out lobbying politicians and smothering ourselves in red paint and trying to do stunts and get people's attention. Our, our way to end war is, is a little more sophisticated than that, I think. And so we are, we're coupling kind of the best of philosophical, communal, theological thinking to tactical, hard, risky, gutsy, on-the-ground work. Often these two things don't meet. I, I don't know if this is common knowledge, but you, you often get very philosophical, heady activist groups, purist activist groups who are extremely smart, who know history really well, or you get kind of all tactical experts who know how to do sanitation or who know economics or who know how to deliver emergency relief. But sometimes finding those two things together is really rare in a in a response organization Mm. so we we try to bring the best of both worlds high level vision and history and philosophy and theology type thinking coupled with tactical emergency relief long-term economic development and we're asking questions like how do we stop the spread of violence how do we protect vulnerable people from being recruited into violence and how we how do we change the ideas and behaviors that lead to violence
1: Mm. that's awesome Well, so Jeremy, where, I mean, um, I know you kind of, it seems like anyway, you started off um, in Iraq with some of this, but I know you have, your teams have moved to uh, other places around the globe to address um, where where you've seen some suffering and where there's a place uh, that you can render some aid in a practical way. Um, Well, so can you let us know, let, let our listeners know, like, what are some of the places right now Preemptive Love is working? And just in a nutshell, what kind of work are you doing in each of these places?
4: Yeah, so our, our our business model is a little different than a lot of organizations our size and bigger who tend to rely on. Um, at this size, it's it's very common that you're getting big grants from the United Nations or some country's government or whatever, and we do some of that. But the the core of our business model relies on monthly donors, and what those monthly donors have allowed us to do is continue to be flexible and responsive to, to get into situations kind of faster than I think we might be able to. Otherwise, if we were only left responding to whatever headline news emergency was going off at, at any given time, um, we're, not, we're not left in a position where we're constantly playing catch-up or reaction. We're able to forecast out 5, 10, 30 years down the road and say, If we want to end war, if we want to stop the spread of violence, then we can't just be responding in Syria when a chemical weapon goes off. We do that. Um, But we also have to be looking down the road and think, what is the next major source of conflict going to be in the world? And so with some of that um, macro level thinking, our work has grown over the years. We are now involved in Iraq, Syria. And kind of throughout Latin America, Mexico, Colombia, Venezuela, being being a majority of what we're focused on right now. I think as we forecast down the road, if we think about refugees, people who have been displaced, people who are on the run for safety and on the run for their lives, it's pretty clear to me that Latin America uh, Mm -hmm. is going to continue to be a, a very huge part of that story, and it's going to continue to put political pressure on the United States. And as the United States continues to figure out where we stand with regard to immigration, refugees, Mm -hmm. left versus right, Democrat, Republican, it's going to continue to dictate who we vote into office, which is going to have significant bearing on what kind of posture the United States takes in the world, which is going to have significant implications for war and violence globally. Yeah. So I kind of draw a line between what's happening in Venezuela right now and then migration out of Venezuela throughout Central America up to the U.S.-Mexico border, border walls, Trump versus Hillary, Trump versus Biden, Trump versus Bernie, and then that conversation dictates who gets their hands on the nuclear football and determines a lot of what happens elsewhere in the world from that point forward.
1: Right. Yeah. And so I tell you what, Jeremy, I mean, uh, hearing what you guys are doing and being aware of what Preemptive Love is doing in the world, number one, I'm incredibly impressed and moved uh, to to see how much you are doing. But at the same time, I don't envy you at all because I feel like once you start trying to take this, as you were saying, sort of this wider view of what's going on in the world and look for ways we can be uh, effective, it just seems like it is a never ending thing. It is a bottomless pit of, uh, you know, because I, mean, I mean, I mean, you, you know, there's things going on in Africa, there's famines, there's like the war in Yemen, which just is heartbreaking and creates all sorts mm-hmm. of human suffering. And, um, and so it's like, yeah, you have, you're only one organization. You have limited resources. Uh, this, this is a globe. There are global problems that, that even if you, even if you were just to say, we're just going to focus all of our resources on Syria, it would still be an overwhelming thing. I, I would imagine, right? Like you're not, not going to solve that problem. Like you're not going to address every amount of human suffering going on. If you just picked Iraq or Venezuela. Um, and, and yet you don't want to focus on one to the detriment of others. So I don't know, how do you make these decisions? And, um, and, and I, I guess, honestly, how can people who are listening, who are frustrated with some of these things that they see, uh, who don't know how, they can make a difference with some of the, all the suffering we're seeing in the world. How can we partner with you guys to help what you're doing?
4: I'm so glad you you brought up that scale issue um, because there's two major things that we're doing to think at scale. One is our digital jobs platform. So rather than only helping Mohammed get his sandwich shop back up and running in bombed out Aleppo rather than only helping Forrest start a soap company so that we can sell his soap abroad and he can sell his soap locally. We do that, but it's really hard to help a hundred million refugees as we look down the road at climate refugees and conflict Mm -hmm. refugees. It's really I mean, it's, it's impossible to start a hundred million soap companies, a hundred million sandwich shops. Like, it's it's not going to happen. Um, and so, we've been asking questions: what what kind of infrastructure, what kind of thinking, what kind of vision do we need to have so that we can start asking for solutions, building solutions for the hundred million people problem? Um, the only thing that gets us there is a digital solution. There, there is no real world physical. Scale that you can do to get to that. So we're building digital solutions that at least allow us to reasonably start dreaming about providing jobs for millions of people. You know, Um, our our digital job solution we're building and currently engaged in helping refugees earn money with nothing but their smartphone. So on the run from a dictator, on the run from climate change, in search of safety. If you have nothing but a smartphone. We are helping refugees earn money from their tent, from a bombed-out building. All they need is a smartphone and a, a cellular connection. Um, and it's easy to envision that, like an Uber, like uh, any, any of these platform businesses that we've seen, it's easy to imagine that with time, scale, skill, a team, you, we can build the kind of technology that would allow millions and millions of people to find income on this platform which will not in and of itself end war, but it helps to prevent people from being so vulnerable that they can be recruited into war. Because once the bombs start falling, if there's no way whatsoever to go out to your sandwich shop, to go out to your restaurant, we're all experiencing this globally around the world right now. Um, We've all been shut out of our physical workplaces. I'm I'm making this call in during the middle of COVID-19 sequestration, quarantine, and I think we're all getting a tiny taste of what it's like to be a refugee and have your, have your life shut down. And our digital jobs platform allows us to actually keep money flowing into refugees' hands digitally in the cloud, even if life outside is a little unsafe.
3: Yeah, so, that's awesome. That's very, uh, very forward thinking
4: that's That's kind of the the backdrop, I guess, to your more pointed question, which is how how can people support us and get involved um, the The single greatest thing that most listeners can do is join us as a monthly donor, join our monthly giving community at any amount um, we those monthly donors help us respond fast with relief when a chemical weapon goes off um, when refugees are starving because of COVID-19 quarantine and they can't get access to food and we show up with tens of thousands of pounds of food for for refugee camps, those monthly donors make it all happen for us. They also keep the digital jobs platform growing and building so that we can add thousands and thousands of new refugees to that platform every month. So monthly donors uh, really make the world go round for us. If you've got any listeners out there who are thinking about their legacy are retired who are looking to give significantly greater sums of money we've got we've got plans and mechanisms to deploy millions of dollars as well so money uh really helps us move forward in our vision to end war in those countries i've listed around the world
3: yeah so where do people go specifically where they can sign up to be a monthly donor or get in contact with someone if they have a um you know a greater sum of money that they can give i'm sure you guys have a website and and things like that right
4: yeah, all of that is easily available at preemptivelove.org. Preemptive Love is our organization. I know preemptive can be a little tricky to spell. Um our motto that a lot of people associate with us in the name of my new book is Love Anyway. So um if that's easier to remember, you can find your way to us at loveanyway.com as well.
1: Mm, awesome.
3: Great, great.
1: Wow. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much. And I, I just want to say, I, Wendy and I, my wife, Wendy and I, we love Preemptive Love. We were so excited um, for the work you're doing. I'm um, happy to support you and recommend uh, your ministry to people all the time. And so I'm so, so grateful for this opportunity to talk to you and to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit more about your heart, your vision, and what's happening with Preemptive Love around the world. Thank you so much for all your hard work.
4: Thank you both. Appreciate it. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. All right, thanks, man. Thanks. Take
1: care. Bye. Oh, Jeremy Courtney, man, so good. Love that guy. Love what they do. Pre- Pre- Preemptive Love Coalition, one of my favorite um, organizations. They're just doing some killer work. And Jeremy, love your heart. Thank you, man, for being our heretic of the week.
3: Yeah, you rock, man. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, if you, um, I would just say, I, I, I think it's one of the the best organizations out there. If you are a, someone who has the means to donate, like, yeah, give give them the funds because they're doing the real work out there. Um, they're really helping and blessing a lot of people. If you want, I, I hate using the word blessing, but you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> Derek, I would have loved to have been in on this conversation. What about you? Oh, you know, What's up with this? This, it, Listen, I'm telling you, we need to start our own
2: podcast. We
0: do. Where we can interview our own people and be in exactly. on the conversation. Well,
2: what, what would that be? It,
0: yeah, what would you call it?
2: I don't know. Um, we have Valentine and we have
3: day. Hmm. Have a Valentine's Day.
0: There you go. I think we can get edgier. We'll let you all know.
3: Okay. <laughs> let us, yeah, hit us up on the hotline and yeah, give us your best, uh, your best podcast name for for Derek and Katie
1: for the spinoff. Yes,
0: we we would love that. But seriously, we'll be in on conversations in the in the near future, and yeah. you can tell that we're working way far ahead for all of the listeners.
1: That's right, yep. and make know, it funny, <laughs> damn it, make it funny. <laughs> your probation period is almost over, guys. Yes. A plus. <laughs> thank you jesus yeah.
3: so let's get let's get into it um we've got another sermon on the mount episode and this time we're gonna get the lord's prayer and i gotta be honest man i don't pray so i'm gonna kick the can yes. Yes. oh you gotta have something i got to say, I, I got you? something to say but i want to hear i want to hear from you all first because i literally don't i oh, don't pray words boy oh boy oh
1: boy all righty
0: I'm curious what every you know what everyone's feelings are about the Lord's prayer. I had mixed feelings in, um, in in thinking about this. There's times when the Lord's prayer for me is super comforting, and I I like saying it with other people. And there's other times where I'm like, why? Huh? I'm yeah. kind of curious where everyone is just on a on a basic what what do we think about it um, before we get into the details. Yeah, I'm on the why end of the spectrum, Katie.
2: <laughs> that's that's where I am. I mean, that's yeah. and 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 mind you, I don't pitch my tent anywhere i'm not in a campfire theology right for me it's all about the journey not about the destination so i don't camp out anywhere but basically i'm 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 at why that's that's my point in the journey
1: yeah yeah uh you know i guess you know it's funny you you just what you just said there katie was the you know he said you know sometimes when you uh you enjoy saying this with other people right And a lot of times that's kind of the context i think nowadays uh like if we're in a group of other Christians, we'll say, you know, let's now let's stand and and repeat the Our Father together. But what's funny is I think that in itself is sort of the exact opposite of what Jesus is actually telling us to do in this passage, Indo. right? I mean, because if you back it up, right, the whole thing starts in uh, Matthew chapter six, starting at verse five. And he says, you know, when you pray, first of all, he gives you a list of things not to do. He says, first of all, don't be like the hypocrites. Because they love to pray standing in the synagogues or in the street corners to be seen by men. So like basically he's not in favor of public prayer, which right there, I mean, what we just described is standing up and praying in public. So Jesus is saying, Don't do that. Don't pray in public. Um he says, I tell you the truth, those people have received their reward in full. And then he says, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. So in other words, it's meant to be this sort of private, quiet thing just between you and God. It's not meant to be this kind of, um, sort of public display. Right. And he says, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And he says in verse seven, and when you pray again, here's another one, do not keep on babbling like the pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And again, that almost feels like, again, like, Hey, everybody, let's just repeat this prayer, this rehearsed prayer. We're just going to go through the motions like we do. Again, that's and and, and so yeah, that comes down to Baptist right there. <laughs> yeah. So so we're kind of already doing exactly what he said not to do. And that in itself to me is kind of ironic. So I, I do want to say before we get into the actual our father part of the prayer and what we think that's all about, I think it's it's important just to point out that I don't think we have truly really grasped everything he's saying, um, what he wants to say about prayer. Um, anyway, well,
2: listen. I want to get in touch with my my inner Emerald Lagasse here, right? And 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 verse who's, nine.
1: Who's that? Who's
2: that? Emerald Lagasse. Come on, man. The, the, you know cooking. Um, you know, bam. Orleans, right? Right? Oh, sorry. Yeah, bam. Right. Thank bam. Oh, man,
3: okay. <laughs> Thank you. Where did come from?
2: So here's the deal. Verse nine. He says, "After this manner, therefore, pray ye." This is the thing that I really hang my hat on when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, because Jesus never said, pray this prayer. Hmm. He said, pray after this manner. I think of it in terms of um, education or, you know, basically, and Katie, you identify with this being, you know, having, you know, being an advanced um, theologian and many degrees and all of that, is that if you give your students... You have thirty students. You give them the same outline. You will get thirty
1: unique papers. Mm -hmm. You better well, you better anyway, because if you don't, don't don't
0: sometimes it's like forty, even when there's only thirty papers. Yeah,
2: (laughs) but but here's what I'm saying is that that basically Jesus says, "Pray after this manner." In other words, he's giving us a template. He's giving us a model, an outline. It's a type. It's not. It, and, and it's funny because I grew up primarily Baptist. And I'm gonna tell you something. In a Baptist church, you don't begin service without the recitation of the Lord's Prayer. so and yeah, you also I, have I'm, to
1: pray if if you if you go freestyle though, you gotta to remember to pray in King James too. You gotta to say thou and all that stuff.
2: Oh, and, and it depends on which Baptist church, because you know, whether it's your you know, forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses. And True. depending on depending on which church you you you're in. You could be guilty of heresy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've done both. I've done both too, and uh, I always try to check when I'm in a new church now, or when I'm. If I'm I'm in a new church, I mumble.
2: I mumble. I mumble.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
3: (laughs) Well, I I wish I wish someone would tell all the Christians who like to uh, yap on and on and on about how we need to bring prayer back in school and do all this stuff publicly about this passage, because that would be a nice reminder for them.
1: Isn't that interesting? You know, I never even thought of that, Matt, but that's exactly right. Next time I see these Christians going on about uh, prayer in school and things like that, I'm going to, I'm just quote right there when Jesus says do not pray in public. Listen, I I cut
2: people off right away when they start talking about prayer in school, because listen, I don't want you teaching my kids shit (laughs) concerning (laughs) <laughs> concerning you know God, right,
1: right, right. Why because do I want public, I public no, school teacher
2: to teach religion to my kids? Yeah, yeah. I, no, no, that I'll handle that. Thank I'll you. I'll handle that. You know, and and as far as prayer in schools, uh, prayer in school goes that as long as there are tests in school, there will be prayer in schools. As long yeah. as there are bullies in school, there will be prayer in school. As long as there are boys that like girls and girls that like boys and boys that like boys and girls that like girls, as long as that is in school, there will be prayer in school. Amen.
3: But um, I, I, I will say there there's a couple of things I do like about the Lord's Prayer specifically. I, I like I, One thing that stands out to me is that the, the forgiveness part it's, um, mm-hmm. it's the, the forgiveness is already done. There's no quid pro yeah. quo. There's nothing like that. There's no, like, if I do this, then this is going to happen. It's like this, this is something I already do. So to me, it's like, well, if, if, if anyone's holding, you know, sins against anyone, who is that? It shouldn't be anyone because th- this right. whole thing of, pro- um, forgiveness is preemptive. So that's one thing that stands out that I do like, I don't necessarily pray it, but I try to live
0: it. And In- yeah, uh, I I got to preach on forgiveness in a uu church a couple of months ago, which was really fun because I can let my inner woo woo just fly in a uu church. Generally, yeah. at least the one where woo-woo I woo woo and the uu. And, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're they're woo! they're totally cool with it. It's so it's so much fun. So uu Chico, I, I got your back here. Woo! And so the but the as we forgive, I use debts. As we forgive our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors, also presumes that we've forgiven. Yes. Yeah. Right, yeah. so we are expected to forgive before we ask for forgiveness, and I don't think it's that simple. Because in my experience, forgiveness is a daily choice that I have to make, right. um, especially against enemies. And uh, it, sometimes it comes really slowly. But I have to be in that kind of frame of mind um, while I seek forgiveness as well. And that it can be so abusive, but it can be so liberating.
1: Yeah, and you know, this is uh, uh, this is something I always uh, try to point out when we talk about this top this you know, the, the Lord's prayer. Uh, and and, th- and maybe this is only something for me. I don't know if everyone else um, has this problem when they approach the Lord's prayer, but I, for the longest time I did, uh, because when I would look at the Lord's prayer, even read it or repeat it or, or think about it, um, I think in my mind, I always took it to be sort of a prayer. Uh, it's basically just, it's me talking to God and it's sort of like, Hey God, these are things I want for myself. Like you know, okay. So you start off with our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay. Get that out of the way. Your kingdom come, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay. Yep. Got it. That's great. But then it's sort of like, okay, God, now here's my list. Here's what I need. I need daily bread. I need you to forgive me. Um, I need you to lead me not into temptation. I need you to deliver me from evil and all that. And so I think I, again, I always thought of it as, as mostly a petitionary prayer and mostly a prayer about the things that I needed God to do for me. And, and it's, Um, it was only a few years ago that I noticed how the entire prayer, uh, that Jesus gives us is a communal prayer. It's a, it's a prayer about us, not about me. It's about a community, Mm -hmm. right? Even at the beginning, it's our father, not my father. It's our father. So even when I go, I begin the prayer, I'm praying to not just my God, but to our God, everyone's God. Right. And then yes, hallowed be your name. And I'm praying for his kingdom to come on earth. Uh, as it is in heaven which again that's we can talk about that in a second because that's probably a very key part of the prayer but then again it goes straight into the verse 11 give us uh, our daily bread not just give me my daily bread like i'm supposed to be praying that everyone we all would have our daily bread and then i'm praying that god would forgive us again it's us our debts or our trespasses as we not just me also have forgiven our debtors so again it's 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 a wide open arms, wide open prayer that's embracing the entire community, and it's. I think one of the things I that it's helped me now. I love now that I can see that because it helps me recognize that when Jesus is teaching us to pray, the type of prayer, like you were saying, Derek, the type of prayer that Jesus wants us to pray is a prayer that takes into consideration the needs of everyone, not just myself. That I'm that I'm encouraged to see that everyone needs. Everyone needs their daily bread. Everyone needs forgiveness. Everyone needs this protection, right? And I should be concerned about that when I come to God and even recognizing that he is not just my father, not just the Christian father, not just the Baptist father, right? Uh, But he's our, he's everyone's father. And that has been really helpful to me uh, just to break out of that sort of singleness of, like, it's not just about me, it is about everyone, One of the things
0: for me about the Lord's Prayer and and praying in community, and I I do take everyone's, you know, not being showcasey in our our prayers out loud, but I I don't think, I think that's also wholly hyperbole. I'm not sure that Jesus meant never pray in public, like never pray in community, Um, And we know that early Christians were praying the Lord's Prayer in community together, and I did a little research. Uh, It's quoted in the Didache, uh, Mm a second century um, kind of instructional manual for Christians, and it says actually to pray this three three times a day. So it was done publicly and privately. But one thing I I love about pre-prepared prayers, like the Lord's Prayer, is that when I don't have words, but I need words, it's there.
2: Mm-hmm. So, this you we're know, supposed to speak in tongues, Katie. Uh, state. I've
0: never had the gift, sadly. So my uh my Pentecostal self will not be ascending. But the yeah, when I when I don't have, when I literally don't have words, when I'm in grief, when I'm in shock, when I'm in um whatever that state is, these these words are available and provide something for me. And there's for me, there's something about people having spoken this in community for you know, 2000, however many years now, that's um, daunting and humbling. And, uh, you know, we have all the potential abuses, but we have all the potential um, comfort in that too. And there's something about that that strikes at, my, strikes at my heart in a good way. Not that we have to say this verbatim, because I do agree it's a template for, you know, being in community, for seeking justice. Um, but there's something about the words being spoken across time and space. And when I've been in churches in other countries, and they've spoken this, and I say it in English, and they say it in their language, that's very powerful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Well, you know, I think that well, that also then emphasizes that community aspect of it too, right? Because it's hearing it in their language, and you're doing it in your language. It's the rec- it's the acknowledgement and the recognition that there's sort of this global body of Christ, right? We're connected to one another. Again, it's not just this localized idea—it's it is something global and it's it's expansive. It's beyond our typical what we can see and touch. And one right. one of the things that I take away from it is that it's an inside out approach.
2: You're starting from within and working your way out. So basically, when you when you say "Our Father" uh, and "Who art in heaven," where is heaven? Where is God's dwelling place? Well, God's dwelling place is in us. Exactly. So, te- so Thank- technically, that's that's heaven. So basically, we're starting from within and working outward. And then it says, "Thy kingdom come." That—that that is the 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 will, the culture, the intent of the kingdom of God. Let it be manifest. And then you say, uh, "Thy will be done." I'm, I'm sorry. Hallowed be thy name. That's the one I wanted to key on because the name you know people say do things in the name of Jesus and the power of the name and all of that and and i see that a little bit differently because when we're talking about the name we're not talking about a physical name like we think of, of Keith or Katie or Matt that's not what it what it is it's the authority it's basically the signet or the um you know basically the seal right so it's we we're we're recognizing your authority not so much the name because if you think about it in in the context of the Old Testament, you couldn't say the name of God. So why would you reverence th- this name that can't be spoken? It's more the authority, the signet, the the seal. So we're we're recognizing that power, that
3: authority. And and piggybacking off of, of what you're saying, um, Derek, if we're starting from within, this is why this whole like dispensationalist rapture theology has never worked. Um, and will never actually work is that when we actually pray the Lord's prayer, we can't, we're not praying like we're going out somewhere. We're not going to be raptured out somewhere. We're praying that, that, that heaven is manifest on, on earth in this place. So it's and heaven starting like within the kingdom, you know, like heaven is within us. It's in our midst and and it is to be manifest out in this earth. There's not some sort of, like, um, I, I don't even know how to put it, um, rapture that takes us away from this place. It, it gets us down to the nitty gritty of, oh. of, of it right here and now and, okay. and doing God's work and, and reconciliatory work, justice work, peace work in this place now. Well, you know, let me let me throw something in right
2: right quick, um, because I'm a big space nerd. And and one of the big things that that's talked about in terms of space exploration now is the colonization of Mars. And one of the things that's frequently spoken about about the colonization of Mars is this um, this technique called terraforming. In other words, you introduce plant and flora the, into the in, into the Martian atmosphere that basically changes the 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 chemical composition of the of the breathable atmosphere, and it also changes the soil, the terrain, and so it's making. Something foreign, ha, um, habitable for human life. So when we say thy will, uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in the earth as it is in heaven, what we're saying is, you know, we want to terraform this space for spiritual occupation. Mm.
0: Say that one more time. <laughs> <laughs> I like yeah, it. I'm just wrapping my mind around yeah, it.
2: Uh, basically, we're saying that we that we're terraforming the Earth for spiritual occupation. That's, that's your new book I, title. There <laughs> you that's our them. podcast
0: title, Derek.
1: Right there,
2: <laughs> terraforming. <laughs> terraforming.
1: Yes. No, that's a cool. I think that's an interesting way of thinking of it. Yeah, that's. Uh, you guys are right on. I think that's exactly right, and that's that was a huge epiphany for me years ago, like to recognize that the gospel wasn't about getting out of here. You know, some some uh, Disneyland I was going to visit after I died but it was really about the, the kingdom. It wasn't even about the kingdom coming now. Like, well, that'll be nice one day. It's like, no, Jesus said it's already here uh, 2000 years ago. He said the kingdom of good news, right? Yeah. Think differently. The kingdom of God is already here. It's here now. It's within you. He said It's at hand. Yeah. And at it's hand. within you. you. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, basically, you know, that's what metanoia means. Not re- repent. It doesn't mean feel sorry for your sins. Like totally change the way you see this thing. And, and, Game
2: changer. And, yeah.
1: Begin to see and think so completely radically different that the kingdom of God is this place you're standing in right now. Look at your feet. Look at the ground. Right. Look around you. This is it. This is the kingdom of God. And again, then it makes this prayer so much more powerful. Right. To pray that this kingdom would come. But again, we're not just, again, sitting around waiting for Jesus to do it um, because Jesus has already told us. No, no, no. It's within you. And you're supposed to be working on that right now. You're, you know, we're, we have this ministry of reconciliation that you were saying, Matthew, you know, we, we've been given this. We are ambassadors of this kingdom.
3: Well, and, and, and the, the only, the only right. way we can do greater things is in community. And Jesus said we would do greater yeah. things, but I don't think he meant, well, individually do greater things. I meant as a Thank community, you. we will do greater of things.
0: That's right. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Love it. So I'm curious where we have um, some problems with the Lord's prayer. And I have two I'm curious where everyone lands on this. So one is the father, like we call this the Our Father and and Lord's Prayer, and this sometimes I say, I'll say it, but it sometimes grates at me a little bit with the yep. patriarchal language. Yes. So yep. we have both father, you know, sort of presume although always presuming God is is male, and I hear people talk a lot about the interpersonal. Relationship of, of Jesus and the Father here, and I, I think some of that's true, and that this is um advocating a personal relationship, and I like all of that. But Father is not neutral, right? Right, like say, and even calling, yeah, even saying Abba, that's not that's not neutral in the ancient world. This I'm, is a figure I'm, at, the with I'm <laughs>
2: at the point now where Mama works for
0: me. Yeah, you know? and that I can I, it works and- for a lot of people. um I like Creator. Uh creator's good, but I I like, I like to make it
2: personal. I'll say Papa, I'll say mama. And sometimes I'll say, uh, what, what God, what he wants is what she wants to do. I'll mix the pronouns deliberately, Mm -hmm. you know, just to make it gender neutral.
1: Yeah. I, I think you get, it's a really good point, you know, um, that, I mean, so I think we needed to take a second and, and, and say a couple of things about this beginning part, this father part at the beginning, like, First of all what Jesus is not trying to say. Jesus is not trying to say hey everybody, God has a penis. He's a man, right? So when you pray, you better pray dear man in the sky. So that's not what he's trying to do. And and if and if if we get that impression if we feel as if that that's what Jesus is trying to the point he's trying to make, that's not at all what he's trying to say. Um but you are right there there are definitely some patriarchal sort of uh threads on this and we do have to be careful about that and make sure that we, we're not doing that. I mean for me and maybe this is a a better question to ask, because for me what Jesus is doing when he starts it off by saying our father or Abba literally he says Abba which is Papa, Daddy. No, uh, it's pater. Oh it's pater. Yeah. Okay. So it's in, the,
0: it's in the vocative. We have very few vocatives. Okay.
1: Nouns. But yeah, that's what it, it's pater. But that idea of God as Father, right, is either father or Abba, is, is um, intended to be, I mean, I think it's a radical thing. I think it's a, it's a very, he, Jesus emphasizes this more than anyone else in the scriptures, this idea of God as not this impersonal force and being far away, but as a, what he's trying to, th- I, I would say, what he's trying to communicate is that God is, is loving, uh, he is like a father who loves and cares for his children, not this angry sort of, again, this wrathful force up in the sky. So sure, it's the afterlife of all of that that can be problematic, yeah, exactly. Right? So it's not the original intent of
0: Jesus. I don't have a problem with that, right. um, but it's the afterlife we talked about this a little bit in the in the p s a episode, but it's the um that fathers in the ancient world had ultimate power, yeah over their household, and I frankly don't need another parent. I have two whom I love a lot, and they love me, and we have a good relationship. I don't need a third, yeah. I need something else. Like that relationship, parent relationship and relationship to God just does not work for me.
1: So let's unpack that for a second, because that's a good point. And so maybe so that's- like
0: Jesus, I feel the freedom to reinterpret.
1: Well, no, yep. well, but that's a say on that though, because I'm, I'm I'm curious, do we feel that we could make a case that Jesus is trying to say that God is your sort of parent in the in the way we would think of a parent? Like he makes the rules, you do what he says. You know what I mean? Like you're under his authority because like even when you look at the the parable, right, of the prodigal son where he gives us a father, the father in that parable doesn't behave like someone who says, hey, hey, son, shut up and follow my rules or you're going to mm-hmm. get the boot, right? So I think Jesus even is subversive in the way he uses father. And, and yep. maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, I actually think we make uh, some assumptions about what father means or what Jesus might mean by invoking father. But I think the way he actually talks about the father, um, even in even in itself, is something that's sort of subversive of the, even the idea of parent in that way.
2: I, I like the way Paul Young did it in the chat. You know, he called uh, called God Papa, but Papa was a Black woman.
1: <laughs> I love that,
2: yes. And 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 to me, that was perfect yeah. because, you know, it, it, it takes so... It it reinforces on the one hand the the papa part of it, the abba part of it, but on the other hand, it relieve it, it relieves us of the baggage of the paternal aspect of God. So yeah. so when when I when I see papa mama source creator, I, I don't you know I I see a gender fluidity. I, I it's still a person. It it's still someone that I can communicate with, uh, that I can have a relationship with, but it's not just some, you know, you know big uh, you know, big white dude with a beard, you know, <laughs> hanging out on the cloud.
3: Exactly. Well, and if this is a template, as we said, uh, Katie, um, do you have any uh, ideas on or, or or ways that you reimagine it in your own personal life?
0: Yeah, I mean, cre- I think creator works for me a lot. Um, more and more source, but with a cap with a with a much more personal relationship than than the sort of typical metaphysical new age kind of crowd might use um so you know very deeply personal deeply cares about the world about community about each and every one of us but the fa- I don't know father like the father mother language kind of makes me um I may I don't know why but it makes me a little uneasy because there is a power dynamic there no matter what
1: mm-hmm. no
0: matter how much we reimagine that no matter how loving that is there is a power dynamic right between a parent and a child, yeah, I and it always that. imagines us as children. I don't particularly want to be imagined as a child. <laughs> I'm a grown-up. I mean, like that's something I've had to worry in my professional life. I mean, you know, as a woman, I've had to um, constantly prove myself that I'm not infantilized. Yeah, so I don't want to be infantilized in my relationship with God.
1: Yeah, and I think yeah. I think you know a good good way to think of that too is that I don't think God would want you to to think you know, to, to approach God with that kind of idea, right? Like God knows you completely. God knows who you are. God relates to you. I believe God meets us where we are. And so because of that, I think God is totally cool with you relating to God in a way that, um, that the emphasis is on the connection and less on the, yep. the particulars of that. Well, okay. Now who's, are you the child? Am I the father? Okay. You're the, son? are you the mom of this? you know what I mean? Like, that, forget about that stuff. Like I think that's less important, right? And I think so. I think it's cool. I think we have permission, uh, at least in my mind, we kind of have permission to reapproach God again with those sort of understandings that God is love, God does know us, God does want what's best for us, and if those things get in the way, then yeah, don't use them. Yeah, totally. And I'm I'm trying to imagine what would happen, and
0: um, sort of you know the the churches that, we, that we've that we all come from, if we said our mother or our creator oh, or um, they, you know. <laughs> yeah, right? <I> so, <laughs> yeah. But for so many of us, the, the father language is so inscribed and it goes so deep in both positive and destructive ways. Yeah. Well, we, we also have to
2: consider the cultural context here too, because the, the thing is Jesus is speaking to an audience of people at their level of understanding.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. This isn't
2: you know, he's not speaking in 21st century language that that we would understand. He's speaking at a, a level of understanding of the first century Jew. Yeah. And so that was that was the context. And so we have to take that into consideration when we're processing this.
0: Yeah. And in the ancient world, there were I, we talked about this recently um with honor shame culture, there's no co equals, right? Everyone yeah. is in a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, every single person I, that's somewhat reflected here, even though it's mitigated. I think Jesus is mitigating that and saying like, there's another way for us to be
1: yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I,
3: and, and ultimately though, I think if we get hung up on the language, then we've missed the point. Just like, just like the parables of Jesus. If we get hung up on, this is what it means, then we don't understand parables. Just like if, if we have to say that, oh, this shows that God is masculine rather than feminine and. I mean it, or even getting hung up on any sort of the um um parental language. I, I think it's I don't want to speak for Jesus. Uh, he certainly can speak for himself. <laughs> but I think I mean just knowing the type of Jesus I read about, I, I think he would be like eye rolling or face palming if we get hung up on the actual words he said rather than the meaning behind the meaning. Exactly. And that's exactly. And, and that's what our churches do. Too often they point this and say, See, he said father. And so therefore, God needs to be thought of as man, male, father. Even if he said mother, I think we'd be hung up on that and said, well, no, do what works for you. Like Derek said at the beginning, like pray in this manner rather than and not don't get hung up on these words. Then you've you've missed the whole point.
2: I agree. You guys have laid out expressly why I am no longer a biblical literalist. Hallelujah.
0: <laughs>
3: all right, I can amen to that, brother.
0: Yes. So we there's one other problem with the Lord's Prayer that I feel like we should explore. Are you all ready for a little Greek? Oh, yeah. Drop, bring it drop on. on yeah. Okay. All right. So we have in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. The word that we translate is daily. We do not know what it means. Mm. So the word is um, epiusius. It's a... I'm a. I'm gonna throw a fancy word. It's a hapax legomena, which means this is like the the first time it occurs in Greek literature.
1: Oh, hapax legomena. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just the first time.
0: (laughs) And so, and it's every other time it occurs, it's quoted. It's someone is quote early Christian writers are quoting this prayer. Mm. And so when I say we don't know what it means, we don't know what it means. So scholars have, eh, not a consensus, but there's a vast majority who are like, daily probably isn't it. So it's a compound word, um, comes from the prefix epi, and then the word probably the word usia. And so when we translate it as daily, that's coming from a Latin interpretation of what this means. Um, but the word day, daily, none of the words that mean that appear at all in this verse. It could also mean um, having to do with substance, mm-hmm. like Lucia as substance. That's so, where I am. Yeah, yeah. I thought that Pro- was really provision. provocative. Yeah, like give us, give us provision. our our bread of substance, or that's not that wouldn't quite be it, but something like that. Yeah, I would
2: and, say pr- provision. That's that's vision. where I am.
0: no yeah.
2: provision. Provision. Yeah. What, what, give me what I need right now. Uh, and, and and let me say this that when when i i I don't like Matthew said I don't pray anymore not like prayer what, the only thing the conversations that I have with God is I need wisdom concerning this and and so what what I'm asking for is a provision to help bring forth a vision that's all I ask for so when 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 I look at that and I say uh give us this day our daily bread it's like okay pop uh, wh- what do I need for today?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: What do I need for this moment? And
0: that's yeah. It, and that's the it. well, and the other opportunity, and Derek, I thought you would really like this one. Is that it? Um, it's also usias can also um, be derived from the verb to be, like it's the noun version of mm. the verb to be. And so then it's give us our being Ooh. Of, with bread. Ooh. So wow. really matching that spirit and the physicality of bread and wheat.
1: Oh, I like oh. that.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so there's these yeah. give us know, our
1: being. Give us our being. And, and
0: bread, bread is in there. Like bread is yeah. certainly a word, but the, the words for day or daily yeah. don't appear. So it's, it's a weird wrinkle.
2: Yeah. That's is. more fodder, more fodder for our podcast, Katie.
3: <laughs> yes. Can 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 I just say um I have a problem with that because I have celiac and I can't do bread. So what am I supposed to do? Die. 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 Just die. <laughs> just die. <laughs> Make it gluten free, man. Hey, I got <laughs> the, the, the gluten free Lord's Prayer. That's what I want. Come on, <laughs> there That's you we, go.
1: Nowadays, yes.
0: You know what my departing my departing gift from my the church when I uh, my last Sunday there when I was a pastor was to provide little um, little bowls to put in the communion plates that would hold the gluten free. Oh crackers oh, well. because I'm very clumsy and so every time I would get the tray I would tilt it and then the gluten-free and the gluten would kind of mix together oh, and cross oh, Shame
3: shame Don't on you.
0: The not anymore. I gave them little olive bowls. Right. Good. Never cross the streams. Hey, you know what I got when I left
2: my church as a parting gift?
0: Uh, I a, I, ask.
2: I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got a I got a left boot. That's I not that they left left me, what they gave me, it's what I gave them. Oh, oh okay. Well yeah, uh, you're so nice. I got the left foot of fellowship.
1: That's right. They were very sweet. They were very sweet to me when they,
0: when I left. So. that's good. All
1: right. Hey, that's a nice that's a nice thing when you leave and, and they bless you on the way out. That's good. Oh, no, it was a, the, yeah, it was a great to party. The, I attend the church to now. So
0: we're all we're all good. Good stuff.
3: Yeah, good stuff. This was this was good. Um yeah, but we're gonna have to wrap it up at some point. But before we do, I just want to remind our listeners that we have a website. It is heretichappyhour.com bookmark it. You're going to be able to stay up to date on the episodes. Check out our store. We have sweatshirts, t-shirts, pillows, hats, all that kind of good stuff. And uh, yeah, check it out today.
0: After you check that out, come join our Facebook group, Heresy After Hours, where we currently have 2,039 heretics just like you asking tough questions with a sense of style. It's snarky, it's supportive, it's wonderful. Come join us there. It's free for everyone. And for those of you who do decide to become Patreons, you have an exclusive group that is just for Patreons only. I just did a Facebook live in there today about the naked young man who runs away in uh, the gospel of Mark during the arrest of Jesus. So you get lots of bonuses like that with your co-host.
1: Oh yeah, baby. (laughs) Yeah. He commented on it. Yes, I did. It was, it was uh, salacious. So yeah. And speaking of Patreon, um, you know what? If you love the podcast and you want bonus stuff, extra stuff, you know, like when it when this podcast is over, if you, man, I just wish I had an extra 20 minutes. Uh, well, if you support us for at least $2 a month or more, you will unlock so many, so many amazing goodies. Like on day one, you'll instantly have access to bonus podcast uh, material, bonus interviews that we've done, um, just all kinds of cool stuff. And so just head over to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. And uh, join up and sign up and unlock all these amazing goodies. Listen, if you
2: like this podcast, if you listen to this podcast, please like, subscribe, share, and most of all, go to iTunes and rate this podcast. Give it a five-star rating. Because if you don't, what will happen? We have an algorithm built into iTunes that will <laughs> respond to you and call you an asshole or a dick. <laughs> Alternately, if you don't, give us a five-star rating. So be sure to like, subscribe, and rate us highly. Do it.
3: Do it.
0: Have an, everyone Do needs it. to have an Epiusius day.
1: Epiusius.
3: Damn F-U-C-S. scholars and their words.
0: I know. Not me, it's Jesus. <laughs>